It is 22 minutes past four. Time to have a look at books. Uh, the Thriller is a new one by the very successful um, English thriller writer Michael Robotham. And most of his books have featured a profiler called Joe O'Loughlin. Uh, there are about, I don't know, something like 10 of those. But the latest one, When She Was Good, is the second in a series featuring forensic psychologist Cyrus Haven. The first one was called Good Girl, Bad Girl. This one is When She Was Good. And the When She Was Good, the she, is uh, Evie Cormack. And her backstory is that uh, when, um, when the novel starts, six years before that, she was found hiding in a secret room in the aftermath of a brutal murder. She has been put into care. She refuses to tell people what her real name is or where she came from. And she does this because everybody she tries to give a sense of the tooth tends to end up dead. So to protect herself and to protect other people, she keeps stum. And Cyrus Haven thinks the truth should out. He believes that the truth will set Evie free. So despite her loud warnings, he's been involved in her case, brought in as a psychologist to help treat her in the home where she is being cared for. So he begins to dig into her past, and that digging sets free a whole lot of very, very dangerous hornets. There are a lot of corrupt and powerful people who want to find Evie. They don't know where she is. They are not aware that she was found and is in this home. But they want her dead because she possesses information which, if brought into the public, would ruin their lives and send them to jail for a very, very long time. Because Evie is essentially the final witness to their crimes. Everybody else is dead. And Cyrus, by digging through Evie's past, is leading these powerful, dangerous men straight to Evie. So the risk is that the truth won't set her free. It will get everybody killed. It's good stuff. He's a, he's a very practiced thriller writer. He has a very good, very good handle on character, nice uh, driving narrative throughout, quite a few little red herrings, just enough to keep you wondering what's this about, who really are the bad guys, what is her secret. Plenty of clues as well as red herrings, which lead you to a sense of what the truth might be. And then a kind of, madcap, crazy, violent, dramatic ending, which is very satisfying. So, yeah, if you like these kind of psychological thrillers, then this is a good example of that. And Cyrus Haven is is one of those interesting, flawed characters who often does harm when trying to do good. There's the word good again, which is in the title, When She Was Good by Michael Robotham. And the latest novel by Bernard Schlink, best known in the English-speaking world for his, I think, 1995 novel, that long ago, uh, The Reader, which was made into a film with Kate Winslet, a very, very good film with Kate Winslet. And I once had the very good fortune of meeting him. I had a coffee with him in a, in a coffee spot along Beach Road in Mooley Point. He'd just come back from Robben Island and he was completely blown away by the experience of Robben Island. And we spent what was for me a very precious two hours together talking about South Africa and South African politics. And he was 
heading off to Namibia to do some research into the German atrocities committed in Namibia at the turn of the last century, into the first part of the last century. And those feature to uh, to a degree and to an important, if uh, relatively minor, degree in his most recent book, which is called Olga. And the eponymous Olga is the quiet and melancholy heroine of this new novel, which is typically elegiac. Um, the, the story, such as it is, is that she's an orphan raised by her grandmother in a Prussian village around the turn of the century. She is smart. She is precocious. She does not want to be the kind of woman that women of that time and of that place are supposed to be. So she fights against the prejudices of the time. And she wants to find a place in the world that suits who she believes she is and can be. She falls in love most unsuitably with Herbert, who is the son of a local aristocrat. Herbert is is not a great partner for Herbert. He's obsessed with um, power and glory and greatness. And he spends some time in Namibia, kind of basically spearheading the German atrocities in that country. And he travels to the Arctic as well, where he meets his end. Uh, but that relationship changes, changes Olga dramatically. I mean, her, her life, her life looked at from the exterior is modest and quiet and unsatisfactory. But it's what happens inside her that is most important. And one of the great strengths of the book is that not only is the story of Olga and her love for Herbert, but it is also the story of Germany through the late 19th and into the 20th century, the events that they live through and that they talk about and about which she writes to him, letters that she knows he will never read, and those letters form the final third of the book. They, so it, it, becomes, it becomes a book about memory. It becomes a book about identity. It becomes a book about German memory and German identity, which then has greater ramifications for identity and memory in other countries that move through epochal historical events. But all of this observed through this extraordinarily interesting and attractive in the sense that she attracts you to want to know more about her and her internal journey. Um, Books like this need good and sensitive translators, and I think Charlotte Collins has done a very, very good job of translating this. So it is a book which, which is melancholy. It's not straightforward. It's complex. It's nuanced. But it is deeply rewarding for those who like their fiction literate. And then the non-fiction work is a second book by um, a social anthropologist called James Sussman. His first book, um, about which I interviewed him a couple of years ago, was called Affluence Without Abundance. And this book, um, the latest one, is called Work, A History of How We Spend Our Time. And it was kind of prompted by the the lengthy anthropological work he did with the Juhuansi Bushmen of South uh, Southern Africa's Kalahari, they still lived as hunter-gatherers through the late 20th century. And he found that, that they did not behave the way that general anthropological theory and the theory of work believes, which is the theory of scarcity and you need to work because um, without work you can't have leisure, you can't have lifestyle. And Juhawansi, they they did not 
as sort of traditional thinking would have it, the hunter-gatherers didn't live on the edge of stardom. They were well-nourished. They lived longer than most people in most farming, agricultural, settled societies. They very seldom worked more than 15 hours a week, and they spent the bulk of their time at rest and leisure. And they did this because they didn't routinely store food. They didn't care for accumulating wealth or status. And they worked exclusively to meet their short-term material needs. So they would work 15 hours a week, and the rest of the time they would jaw. They would have fun because they said, it's cool. When we run out of stuff, we'll just go and get more. They didn't feel the need to work hard so they earn things with which they could buy things and store things. They had no sense of the future, and yet they were happy and healthy. So how is it, and this is the question he asks and answers in a, in a splendidly readable way, is, is how did we evolve from that hunter-gatherer paradigm of let's chill. Let's chill in the moment. Let's have fun. Let's work only as much as we need to in order to keep alive and keep healthy and then spend the rest of our time dancing and talking and drawing and all that kind of stuff. How did we evolve from that to what we are at the moment where we work 60, 70, 80 hours a day and we work to earn stuff, to do what with? To buy and then we have payments on it so we need to work some more and so our entire identity revolves around what we do, what work we do, and our leisure time is dramatically restricted as a result. And we're not happy. Well, some of us are, but many of us are not. We're stressed. We're worried about our work, the future of our work, our futures. And so how how we got from that to where we are now and what the options are for um Perhaps a paradigm which moves away from what we're living in at the moment is on the pages of, I mean, he, it's really, really approachable and he makes a very, very strong case. Work, a history of how we spend our time by James Sussman.